Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm Kyle Fagala, your host, and on this morning's episode, we have Dr. Kevin Shelby, a counselor and a professor at the Harding School of Theology, who will be teaching us actually three weeks in a row on intimacy. So Grant Dasher spoke uh, last week on knowing God. Today we're going to talk about knowing ourselves or knowing yourself. And uh, Kevin will talk about that in terms of intimacy and the relationships involved with intimacy. The more we know one another or we know God or we know ourselves, the better the intimacy that's possible. And so Kevin will be talking on that topic this morning. I hope it's a, a great topic for you. It's one that we have not covered like this in quite some time, so I'm definitely looking forward to it. So without further ado, let's go to Kevin now. Just you leave can, it there. You can pocket it. Okay. Great. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all this morning? Good? Yeah? Let's just take a second because I know we're all, we faced this week, this past week, and we have the upcoming week. Let's just take a deep breath. I have four children at my house. I need another breath. <laughs> You know, I, I think it's important for us to just sort of let the, try to let the, the, the worries and the cares of what's going on outside of here melt away for a minute because we're talking about something that I think is really important. This is near and dear to my heart. And it's something that I have been on a journey on personally and professionally. So, um, so I'm going to share from, from both perspectives this morning from the professional side and the personal side. Some of you know this, some of you don't. I'm a counselor and a professor of counseling at Harding University. We have a satellite campus here in Memphis. And, um, you know, I have spent 12 years, 13 years, um, in the process of working through my own stuff while trying to help other people work through their stuff. And that can be challenging sometimes. But it's, it's been a tremendous blessing. And I would say probably in the last five years, I've seen the most growth. You know, going through a counseling program, you have to do all this introspective kind of stuff. You have to look deep within yourself because one of the things we say is you can never take somebody in counseling further than you've gone yourself emotionally. So if I have blind spots, which we'll talk about later in my life, it's going to be hard for me to help you see your blind spots in your life if you come and sit with me. So the work of a counselor is never done, right? On themselves, we, we constantly have to go deeper. And sometimes that can be really annoying, frustrating, wearisome. But I think that that is also something that Christ is wanting to do with each one of us, right? I think he's wanting us to continue to accept the invitation to go deeper. And so that's where we're going to talk this morning. That's what we're going to focus on is how do, we, how do we get there? And what are the reasons why we can't get there sometimes? I'm only going to scratch the surface here with knowing yourself because there we could spend 10 weeks on this topic and still not even get close to what we need to. But hopefully this morning 
something will spark your interest. Something will challenge you to look a little deeper inside yourself. And, you know, they say that people rarely remember what you say. And so you'll probably forget 80% of what I talk about today. But I hope that there's one thing that you walk away with that causes some more introspection that's like, oh, that makes sense to me. That helps me understand why it's hard for me to see some things in my own life and what it is I need to do to, to, to know myself better, okay? So as I mentioned earlier, I, I have a beautiful wife and four children. Um, we, our children are ages nine, eight, six, and we have a foster son who's three. So our house is pretty wild right now. Um, me and Melissa fight over who gets to go to the grocery store to get out of the house. So uh, just because of the loudness, you know, it's like the grocery store is quieter than my own home. Um, but we have, uh, we have, because of, of the, the challenges of, of having four children, we've had to find some ways to, you know, really, really continue the introspective part of ourselves. Because as I'll talk about later, the greatest gift that we can give to another person is knowing ourselves. I'm going to say that again. The greatest gift that you can give another person is knowing yourself. Because when you have that and you open that up to them, that's where intimacy begins. Okay? So why is it important to know yourself? What, what is it that causes us to say we need to do this? Because we could make an argument for, you know, I mean, I am who I am. And people just need to accept that. How many people have heard that? That's a pretty popular thing to be said in our culture today, isn't it? I am who I am, and you just need to accept that. I'm not the problem. You're the one that has to be okay with it. And what I think, rather than people saying, I know who I am, and I'm offering that to you, I think what they're saying is, look, I know you can see my junk and I don't really care. I, I'm, I'm going to stop caring about you being offended by what I do, what I say, the things I choose to engage in, right? That's not a very engaging way to enter into relationship, to just say, look, I'm good. I'm good with me and you better be good with me too. I don't think that's the journey that Christ calls us to when he asks us to go deeper with him. And I don't think it's what he wants us to do with others. I think most of us, when we say, look, I just am who I am, you better be okay with it. Really what we're saying is, I'm okay with continuing to hide. I'm okay with not being vulnerable and just allowing what you see to be all you get from me. And really, our call is something completely different than that, right? It's not to say, <clears throat> let's just be okay with what you see, with, with what I'm willing to give you. It's, I'm going to push harder for you to know the deeper parts of my heart. Could somebody uh, find Matthew 7, 1 through 5? 
And then somebody else find Psalm 139, 23 through 24. While you're finding that, let me say this. Intimacy is about, the simplest definition I can give you is intimacy is about knowing and being known. That is the, that is the clearest definition that I can give you. I know y'all had another definition last week uh, that was beautiful but as far as just as simply put knowing and being known right that I am willing to know you and that I'm willing to be known by you if if all you if all that happens between two people is I know you but you don't really know me that's not intimacy that's not depth of relationship so let's, as we're framing this conversation, think about that. And we're starting with the first part of that, being known. But by being known, you have to know yourself, right? So who's got uh, Matthew 7 for me? Anybody? Got it. Okay, Bill. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You have first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Thanks, Bill. All right, and uh, Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Thank you. Okay, so we got two things here. Jesus is saying, hey, before you start pointing out things in other people, know, know what's going on with yourself, right? That's the, that's the basic gist of what Jesus is saying. And then uh, David is saying, God, I want you to search me. I want you to know my heart, know my anxious thoughts, and then lead me in the way everlasting. So it's knowing ourselves is twofold, right? It's us recognizing, investigating, looking for. This is the language Jesus is using. What's going on with us? And then also allowing God to do some of that searching within us as well. Okay? I think the big thing here is, where do we even begin, right? Like, we need a you are here map that says, where am I? I don't even, you know, and, and some of us may feel like, you know, I've got a pretty good grasp of where I am in life and what I do and, you know, who I kind of think I am. But the question that we have to figure out is not just where are we in life, but where are we spiritually? Where are we emotionally? Where are we with the things that have happened in our past and how have those impacted us today. And so as we begin to think about that, let me tell you this story. Our daughter, Millie, who's six, uh, when this incident occurred, she was five and a half. And um, we had gone, we went to Dallas to uh, spend a weekend with my brother and his family there. 
And there, uh, it was for my nephew's birthday. His name is Cy, who was turning nine, I think. But we hung out there for the weekend, and um, and my nephew and his sister Tess, my niece, they had a video iPod that my brother and his wife had given them. And they were playing with it all weekend, and the kids loved it, right? And so. Uh, just, Melissa, when was this? Two weeks ago? Yeah, they went to the zoo with my mom came back, yeah. Two weeks ago. So this, so we went in, what month did we go to Dallas? February. February. So we went to Dallas in February. She was a little older than... The story's better if she's five and a half. <laughs> okay. Worse. Yeah. So, um, so we were there in February, right? And then we this two weeks ago so we're in August right we've had almost six months or it has been six months all of a sudden Millie is found playing with this video iPod they found it in her backpack at the zoo when they were getting snacks oh I'm glad you're here to make yeah to add <laughs> that's not going to be on the podcast let me repeat that no. uh, so Millie had it in her backpack right well then there's this big question of where did this video ipod come from we hadn't made the connection yet and so melissa is like where did it come from and and you know millie finally fesses up and says i took it from tess and Sai. so melissa calls my sister-in-law and says i think we have your video ipod and so she's like well let me talk to Tess and Cy because I think they lost it. And so she talks to him and she's like, no, it's not ours. She didn't say that they lost it. She just said it's not ours. So then Melissa's like, well, whose is it, right? So there's this big investigation. Finally, we figure out that they thought they had lost it six months ago. But Millie had stolen it six months ago. Millie told us that she liked it, wanted it, took it and stuck it in her backpack. And then when we said, did you forget about it? She said, no, this is the scariest part. She said, no, I knew that if you saw me playing with it, I'd get in trouble, so I never pulled it out. She's six years old, okay? All right, so maybe we should be having a parenting class or something. Um, so anyways, needless to say, we were, we were stunned because our sweet little Millie, you know, had stolen this iPod. And, uh, and what was so interesting to me is that though the iPod had been stolen, they had been convinced that something, that they had lost something, right? So it was like, they didn't even, they didn't even, they stopped looking for it because they felt like they had lost it rather than it had been taken from them. I think that's a perfect metaphor for what Satan does to us. We, in our reflection on who we are and what's happening with us, a lot of times Satan has actually stolen something from us but we've spent so much time convincing ourselves it's just gone. We just lost it. It's our fault. 
it's gone, it's not there, that we don't even look for it anymore. We stop the pursuit. We even re resign ourselves to say it's just gone. I mean, I'm, I don't, there's nothing to look for, it's just gone. But the enemy has stolen something from us. And that's really important for us to think about. The enemy stole something from us. And I believe that that's really the good news of the gospel, is that what the enemy stole from us, Christ came back to redeem and renew within us, to resurrect that which was broken. If we, if we can't go on the journey of knowing what those things are, then it's going to be hard for us to experience resurrection in our brokenness. So I want to ask you for just a second, just reflect on, what are some things that maybe the enemy has stolen from you? And if you're sitting there going, I have no idea. I couldn't even begin to answer that question. What has the enemy stolen from me? Then I would say that's a good indication that it's time to start looking. And if you do have an awareness, then it's good to begin the journey of finding healing in those places. Now you may think, well, he's a counselor. He, he's going to say that, right? But I can tell you, not just because I try to walk other people through that process, that it has been good for me, personally. It's been necessary for me, personally. I'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, we see this with Paul. Paul talks about, you remember when he says in Romans 7, which I know y'all just did a, a Romans series. Remember when he says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. You know, that, that redundant language that he uses there. And then he says, you know, there are, two, there are two parts of me, basically. There's the law of the Spirit and the law of sin and death. And those two things wage war within me. That, that is, I believe, what Paul is referring to is the broken places within us, right? That, that are unredeemed that war against what the Spirit is wanting to do in us. And if we don't know what we're fighting against within ourselves, then how can we get anywhere with it? It's the Spirit that brings those things to light. But I think we see this in the human condition, right? You know when you look around you that there are people in your life that you see that have missing pieces right like you can recognize there's some people who are it's very clear and other people it may not be so clear but they have all of us actually have missing pieces and often we're looking for other people or things to to fit that final puzzle piece for us and it's not going to work you know we stay mad in our relationships because it doesn't fix us because it doesn't complete us, it doesn't fill us in the ways that we want to be filled. So what is your missing piece? Everybody's like, whoa, are we, is this like, are we, 
fancy taking uh, answers here. I'm not, this is a, this is just a rhetorical question. What is your missing piece? Or what is a missing a piece? So in the process of thinking about how do we, how do we begin diving deeper in, I want to read you this story. Has anybody ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah? Okay. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anybody read that one? Obviously, if you've read the series. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is my favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's kind of a strange little um, depiction of Prince Caspian is looking for his father who's disappeared, and he takes this crew with him. And, and so in the story, I would assume that many of you know the story, at least of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the um, the Pevensies are taken into Narnia. Lucy, the youngest, she is the one who goes into Narnia again in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And behind her, grasping her heel as she gets sucked into this painting to go back to Narnia is Eustace, her really annoying, frustrating cousin. Eustace is, is the kid that nobody wants to be around. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you go on a trip and you're like, man, that's the one that is too annoying for me to really engage with, okay? So that's Eustace. Eustace spends much of his time on the boat because they're on this boat going from island to island. He spends much of his time on the boat annoying everybody, just picking at people. And finally he ends up so frustrated. He's on the deck by himself, <coughs> curled up, just saying, I want, I want to be done with these people. So they land on this island and Eustace jumps off the boat and runs off by himself. And everybody's like, we don't care. Eustace can go. So, so he goes and he comes across this giant skeleton, a dragon skeleton. And on the arm bone of the skeleton is a gold band, like, a, like an armband. And so Eustace takes it and he slips it on. He puts it on his arm and immediately he turns into a dragon. And he loves this because now he's big and powerful and he takes that power and he flies over the camp of all the people that have been mean to him that he's been angry with and he breathes fire at them and he scares them, right? And he loves to see them run because he feels like he has power over them. And this goes on for a while. But finally, Eustace starts to feel lonely and disconnected. And he doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. Being a dragon isn't getting him what he wants anymore. And so he, he helps the people in the camp figure out who he is. But he can't, still can't get the dragon skin off. He, he thinks if he can pull the armband off that that would work, but they can't get the armband off. Finally, he meets Aslan one night, and this is what happens. This is his description of how he becomes de-dragoned. The water was so clear, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion, Aslan, told me I must first undress. 
suddenly I realized that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked and saw that, there were all, that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. So I scratched and tore again, and under this skin peeled and, under, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, how many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg, the, the leg that had the armband on it, so I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the other two and stepped out of it but as soon as I looked at myself in the water I knew it was no good <coughs> the lion said you will have to let me undress you I was afraid of his claws but I was pretty nearly desperate now so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it the first tear was so deep that I had thought it, gone, it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He, be, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, thicker, darker, more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. I don't know what that means, but... And smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that because I was tender, and he threw me into the water. After that, it became perfectly delicious as soon as I started swimming and splashing. I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. I think that, though a little long, this is a very important depiction of, of the work that happens with us as we're beginning the process of knowing ourselves. There are layers, right? And as we peel these layers back, we go deeper and deeper. And I think there are layers that we can't get through that only Christ can peel through in us. But as we go deeper and deeper, it hurts more and more. And I think that's why we take a detour sometimes. We're like, oh, that hurts a little bit. It's a little too deep. I'm not going anymore. I'm not going any further. And that's exactly the point at which we should keep going. Where we say, I'm not going to stop. Because just as Jesus faced death on the cross, and after that found resurrection, after the pain came the resurrection that is our journey as well 
I think as we journey into our pain and make the discoveries of what has left us feeling dissatisfied with life or uncomfortable with who we are or frustrated or angry, those things become signposts that say, hey, there's something here that I need to explore. I'm going to get more into that in just a minute. How am I doing on time? Um, okay, so I'm going to draw something up here for you. This is a, this is a diagram just to kind of help you conceptualize this, this work that we're trying to get to. So in terms of knowing yourself, a lot of times we focus on this, right? What does my behavior look like? Am I behaving well? Am I behaving not well? And we, we make our determinations about how we're doing in life based on our behavior. The problem is that behavior doesn't really tell us anything about what's going on in our heart. Okay, so this is what, this is what um, the prophets would talk about in terms of Israel. Hey, you worship me. You know, God says, you worship me, but your hearts are far from me. And then you take the opposite of that, and you have David, who was a murderer. He was an adulterer. And yet it says he was a man after God's own heart. So there's something about the heart that's really important to God, okay, that goes beyond behavior. And yet it's human nature to focus on, do I behave well? Am I performing well? Am I making enough money? Do I have enough friends? Am I engaging in a way that people like me? But God says, I want to know the heart, okay? I want to know what's deeper than that. So behavior really is the expression of ourselves that, that sometimes isn't even in congruence with where our heart is. But we leave it to the behavior to determine whether or not we're doing well, right? Okay, so, so if you think about this, like that's the first layer, right? Inside of that is our, our attitude. Okay, so our attitude drives our behavior. Well, our attitude is sort of our state of being. You know, it's, it's what, it's kind of how we feel. It's our opinions, maybe some of our underlying beliefs about things, but it still doesn't really tell us who we are. We try to define ourselves by that, right? You see people get really up in arms about political stuff or religious stuff. They're letting themselves be driven by their opinions by their attitudes towards things. But this definition of who we are isn't deep enough. It doesn't go to the core. It, just because I know that you voted for Donald Trump or you didn't vote for Donald Trump doesn't mean I know who you are. And yet, if you look on Facebook, a lot of people believe that you do know who somebody is based on how they voted, right? So this, though, does not disclose who we are to people. This is actually just one more layer deep, and it's a little, it's a little more vulnerable to express, you know, 
what you believe about certain political, religious, those kind of things. But it isn't who you are. Who you are is more defined by what's in your core. All right? So what's in your core is your pain. I might call this your core wounds. your fears. Now we're talking about core fears here. So these are things that drive you without you even really knowing it. And sometimes these are blind spots to us, right? These are fears or you might also call them anxieties. Your dreams, where you find your joy and your desires. So, this, if we're looking at getting to the core of who we are, it takes a lot of work to get here. Now, somebody tell me, what is your core fear? How many people went, whoa, that's too deep. That's a hard thing to, to disclose. Somebody might say, I don't, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, maybe you don't really know what you're afraid of then. Or, I don't, you know, that doesn't really tell you who I am. I would say practice trying to disclose some of this to somebody and see how hard it is. It is not easy. Especially when it's true. when it's not something that is just sort of marginally like part of how you feel, when it's like this is at the core of who I am, it will sting to let somebody know that. You'll feel yourself try to protect it. That's when you know you're at the core. These things are what actually drive our attitudes that then are driving the expression of who we are. And getting at this, this part of us right here, our, our pain and our fears, this is the stuff that drives us, just like Paul talks about, to do the things we don't want to do. This is what creates sin in our lives. And I don't mean just sin as in the behavior level of sin, though we get caught up here, don't we? We think sin is behavior. Sin is not behavior. Sin is, is a core separation from God. It is the places in our brokenness that we've been, we've been separated in our relationship with who God is. That's sin. It's expressed in some behaviors, but most of those behaviors are targeted at us numbing ourselves because of our separation. Right? So, so let's say I, you know, let's say I look at pornography. Or let's say I get drunk every night. This, though described as sin, is really more about the behavior level of the brokenness that's underneath. There is a core fear or a core anxiety or a core, or a core wound that drives those behaviors. And that separates us from God and it separates us from really knowing ourselves because we're numbing ourselves 
We're keeping ourselves from really realizing what's going on deeper inside. And it doesn't always have to be this. I've seen people use exercise. I've even seen people use Bible study as a means to, to focus on some type of behavior that they think is going to let themselves really know who they are instead of, instead of letting it sink in to what their pain is, to, to let it sink in to what their fear is, right? Now, I'm not saying Bible study is bad, okay? But if you think that knowing Scripture and quoting book, chapter, and verse is going to save you from your, your pain, just because you know it doesn't mean that you're experiencing the redemption of Christ. It might put you on a better start than getting drunk every night. Certainly would, right? But it doesn't mean that it's going to solve your core wound or it's going to heal your core fear. So what do we do with this? How am I doing on time? Okay. When we get caught up in these areas right here on this behavior level, it actually works against us to reinforce shame. Shame is a positioning of saying, I am something rather than I do something. So, so shame would tell us, I am worthless versus, man, I, I made a bad decision. That's guilt. Okay? So shame, it, it, it is like saying on the you are here map, you are in this place, which is actually a lie. That's what shame is. And so when we think about what prevents us from being known, there are a number of things. And they start with shame. But I think that, I'm gonna have to skip a couple things. What prevents us from being known starts with we, we end up taking, trying to take for what, what it, we try to take for ourselves what is only God's to give. We try to take for ourselves what is only God's to give. So I'm going to give you a story about this. I, uh, we recently got into the Enneagram. I know that there's several people in here who have done stuff with the Enneagram. And I, uh, we've really enjoyed and struggled through some things with that, right? But it, it's been amazing how much using the Enneagram as a tool, it's not, an, it's not the answer, right? It is a tool that's helpful for us to understand ourselves better. Using the Enneagram has, has brought some stuff out. I am an eight on the Enneagram, and I don't know if you know anything about that, but essentially what that means is I can be a jerk sometimes, right? Was that an amen? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> well-placed cough. Uh, 
So this is my wife, by the way. I don't know if I'm sure you gathered that by now. Um, so I'm an eight, and I, I have a tendency sometimes to be abrasive, and I don't even realize it. You might, you might see me very energetic about an issue. Energetic's a nice word, isn't it? Energetic about an issue that I don't really care that much about, but it feels like, like confrontation to some people, to a lot of people. And, uh, and I don't even realize that I'm, I'm putting this off, okay? So when this really came to light for me, I was with my brother and Melissa was there and uh, his wife, Jill, and they're Enneagram coaches. And so they're talking to us about the different stuff. They actually came and did a retreat for us that some of you went to. And my brother said something uh, about eating out. And I said, well, you eat out all the time. And Melissa said, well, you do too. You eat out a lot. And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't eat out a lot. I don't eat, I, I rare, you know, I go like I'm building my case for all the reasons why I don't eat out and telling them why my brother does eat out. And it's like this weird argument, right? That I start off with and um, it, pointless argument. And my brother says, okay, let's just stop for a second. He says, at what level are you feeling this as being a big issue? on a scale from one to 10, one being not a big issue, 10 being this is a huge issue. I'm like, I don't know, like a two? And, and he's like, I'm experiencing you at like a seven or an eight right now. And I look, I look over and Melissa and Jill are shaking their head yes. <laughs> and I'm like, then I, then, I, then I started arguing about that. <laughs> I'm like, what? No, I'm not at a, I, no, I'm not a seven. I'm, I'm at a two right now. Come on. And they are, they're smiling like many of you are right now. But it was a moment that really was tough for me because this was a blind spot. This was something that I had no idea. And do you know what I did? I'm exercising some vulnerability here. I immediately left and went in the bathroom and started bawling because all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't hiding something I thought was hidden, that other people saw it. And, and the, the next thought that I had was, how terrible must it be to be in relationship with somebody who's like that? Like, I would never want to be around somebody who acted like that. In fact, I've avoided people who treat me that way. And yet my, my wife was willing to say I do and spend 14 years. It's 14, right? Almost 14. 14 years with me enduring that kind of frustrating stuff. That's what knowing yourself does. It takes you to this really hard, painful place that's gut-wrenching. And you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't know how to be different. I want to be different. And our only option in those moments is to say, God, I, obviously my efforts have not worked. What can you do in me to change this? What can you do in me to heal this?
we have blind spots that we're unaware of. And so start the, starting the journey of knowing yourself is beginning to know those blind spots. That's why we have to be in community with other people because there are things that we can't see that they can and they can help bring that out. Vulnerability requires us to ask people in our community, where are my blind spots? And be willing to hear it. Also our fear. What causes you to be reactionary? Is it politics? Is it theology? Is it sports? Have you ever asked the question like, what's going on here? What's this about? Instead of just saying, well, this is just part of who I am. What is going on here? When your spouse is talking to you about something and you don't know why, but you immediately go to defensiveness. This happens with me. Have you ever asked yourself why you're defensive? Not what's wrong with them, but what's going on with me? Those are places where fear starts to seep in. And here's why. Here's how you know. Because fear causes us to try and protect ourselves. It's a natural reaction. It's built in our DNA. You've heard of fight or flight, you know, somebody held a gun to your head, you're going to experience fear and it's going to cause you internally to respond with defensiveness, with a defensive posture. So what are your fears and what lies have you believed? Do you believe you're worthless? Do you believe that you're not good enough? What lies have you believed? Going to those places. Okay, so I want to thank Kevin for doing an excellent job. There's so much more there that we could uh, definitely dive into. Uh, you know, I definitely invite you to look some of these ideas up, look some of these things up, or even reach out uh, to Dr. Kevin Shelby. He does counseling. Um, I know you could probably even audit one of his classes if you wanted to. Um, but uh, you know he's got a lot more to talk about. We spoke for about 10 minutes after class on some of these topics. And uh, really, I think it's just a process that, of course, we won't solve today, but maybe a journey that you can start um, introspectively and kind of get into that maybe with books and some other things and maybe speaking with your spouse or a friend about some of these topics. So we will be off next week. We have Mark Gregston, who is a nationally known speaker, who is talking about teenagers and some of those issues. Uh, so we will be off the podcast next week, but then we'll be back the week after that. I believe Bill Ivey will be with us and then two more with Kevin after that. So I hope you have a wonderful week and we will see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.